Welcome to Petrifaction. I'm your host, Petey. And if you like stories about ghosts, monsters, vampires, the weird and mysterious, UFOs, Bigfoot, and other cryptids, you're in the right place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Remember, friends, be prepared to be petrified. Uh, we have a really, really good show for you guys today. We're going to start off with something from the Warren case files. Now, you know who the Warrens are, right? Ed and Lorraine Warren, the dynamic duo of ghostbusting. They are famed for the Amityville hauntings, the Amityville horror hauntings in Amityville, New York, among other cases. And, you know, there is the whole Warren universe out there now with all the movies. And this one is about Frenchie Theriault. Frenchie is in the movie The Nun. He is brought up, is totally fictionized with him in that movie, of course. And by the way, the movies are so good. They're so scary. I really, really like them. But I digress. So the first story we have today is about the possession of the real Frenchie Theriault. This story comes from the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. It's the story of Maurice Theriault, also known as Frenchie Theriault. This occurred in Warren, Massachusetts in the 1980s. Like most cases of demonic possession, this case begins with a person who unwittingly invited forces into his life. As a small child, Maurice Frenchie Theriault lived a hard life. He suffered long hours working on his family farm with his abusive father. His father alternated between anger and outright abuse, and he became more and more violent towards his son Frenchie as the boy became older. His father expected much more from him than any small child could accomplish, let alone an adult 
or even a teenager. Frenchie at this time began to ask for help. He called upon anyone who would help him, and then unknowingly, he asked Satan to help him through this situation. It's also during this time that he witnessed something horrific in the farm's barn. Frenchie was forced to watch and participate in acts involving his father. Though the nature of these acts is not revealed, it strongly hinted that it involved sexual acts with the farm animals, commonly referred to as bestiality. At this time, Frenchie began to notice differences in himself. He was able to lift things that no teenager, let alone a full-grown adult, should have been able to lift. And he had knowledge of things that he couldn't possibly know. He eventually was forced to quit school and work full-time on the farm. To escape, at 18, he tried to join the army. However, his father went to the recruitment office, and Frenchie was let go of this commitment. His father would not allow him to leave the farm until his 23rd birthday. And once he left, Frenchie floated around New England for several years doing different odd jobs. Eventually, he settled down in Warren, Massachusetts. In the spring of 1985, the town of Warren noticed the first signs of something unusual going on with Frenchie. Things that had already begun to dominate he and his wife's lives for years. He turned his guns into the sheriff and asked him to not give them back. At the farm, they suffered unexplained terrors. Blood would randomly appear in the house and on Frenchie. He was covered with marks. His unusual strength continued. The family would hear voices where there was no one around, and things would move throughout the house and the farm. Frenchie would often drift away in loose chunks of the day. Fires broke out on the property bringing the family to the attention of the local police. But the most disturbing activity involved the appearance of the other Frenchie. He had a doppelganger. He would be in one room and then appear to his wife outside or in another room. When she would try to follow her husband, he would disappear and she would find the real Frenchie in the room he was in originally. This happened in full view of other people many times, when the witnesses could see both men within seconds. After physical examination and psychological testing was done by medical professionals that failed to bring any so solution to the situation, the Warrens were asked to come in. Ed and Lorraine Warren, that is, the dynamic ghost-busting duo. The Warrens were gaining popularity at this time as investigators of the paranormal, and they'd already worked on several famous cases, including the Amityville Horror Case in New York. And it had been made into a book and several movies by this time. 
Ed Warren had already been classified as the only lay demonologist in the country. So they brought their team in and witnessed dozens of examples of the evil presence. And the longer they stayed, the more intense the experiences became at the Theriault residence. Often, events followed them back home. The activity ranged from low-level poltergeist activity to physical attacks. All the team members, even some non-believers, found themselves involved in unexplainable activity. Frenchie's attempts to turn to God for help resulted in more physical attacks. One night while trying to recite the Hail Mary, he became so violent he tried to choke his wife. The Warrens made the decision that this was not a normal haunting, but a case of possession, and they called in Bishop Robert McKenna, who agreed to perform an exorcism. The exorcism, however, was not sanctioned by the Catholic Church. During the Battle of Wills, the demon identified itself. This often brings an end to the exorcism, but in this case, the demons attached to Frenchie were many, and these evil forces are the ones that tried to corrupt humans. Ed also, Ed Warren, almost lost his life during this exorcism. The exorcism itself was partially successful. It seemed to work for a few years, even though smaller hauntings still occurred on the farm. But unfortunately, this isn't the end to the story. Years later, in the 1990s, Frenchie was arrested for sexually abusing a minor. His wife filed for divorce and also filed for a restraining order to keep her husband away. Frenchie attacked her, shooting her several times, then turned the gun on himself and committed suicide. His wife, Nancy, badly injured, managed to stagger out the door into the neighbor's yard. There, the neighbors were able to get her help in time, and she survived. The name of the book regarding this case is called Satan's Harvest. It's available on Amazon, as well as audiobooks on Audible. I'm sure you know about this. If you go on the internet and look up Florida Man with your birth date, you'll come up with all kinds of stories. Not just one usually either for the same for your date. You might get two, three, or four, or maybe even five stories for that date. And that's why it is a phenomenon in its own self. Florida Man. So, I'm going to share a little bit of Florida Man weirdness with you right now. Hi everybody, this next story is another Florida Man story. This is a weird one, I think. It happened in February of 2016, and in it a Florida man is arrested for throwing an alligator through a drive through window. So I'm going to go ahead and read this report that came from Fox News, dated February 10th, 2016. And on October 12th of 2015, a Florida man was arrested and charged with assault with a deadly weapon without intent to kill 
after allegedly throwing an alligator through a Wendy's drive through window. Joshua James was 24 at the time. He threw a three-and-a-half-foot alligator through Aloxahatchee, Florida, Wendy's drive through window. And according to the Florida Fish and Game Wildlife Conservation officials, he was charged with illegally possessing an alligator and petty theft. A report that James drove his pickup truck to the window at about 1.20 in the morning on October 11th was written by Wildlife Officer Nicholas Guerin. When an employee handed James his drink, he tossed an alligator through the window and then sped off. No one was hurt, and Guerin captured the alligator and released it back into the wild. James was finally tracked down through video surveillance and a purchase at a neighboring convenience store. Guerin wrote that James admitted to throwing the alligator in a December interview. He said that James told him that he'd found the alligator on the side of the road and put it in his truck. The Palm Beach Post noted that James faces a third-degree felony charge for possessing, the, for possessing the reptile. If he's convicted of that particular charge, he could face up to five years in prison. James later said that he meant no harm. It was meant to be a prank, and after this, his pranking days are over. All right, guys, so this next one is a really weird story. For the sake of entertainment, I'm putting it in here, but I outright think it's just a made-up, like, creepypasta thing or something of that nature. But it goes back to 1989, and it was reported in a news weekly. And I, I think, really, it was a tabloid, but I'm not sure on that exactly. Anyway, it's an entertaining story. If it really did happen, it is really freaking terrifying. But as with everything with petrifaction, it's up to you to decide if it is fact or fiction. I know my opinion, but you need to hear the story to decide what you think. So here it is. This is, this is about Flight 513. The missing Santiago Flight 513 landed after 35 years with 92 skeletons. This story comes from MysteriousFacts.com. On September 4, 1954, Santiago Flight 513, a commercial airliner, departed from West Germany, destined for Brazil. The flight should have taken about 18 hours. Instead, it took 35 years. This unusual story was first published as a piece of news by the Weekly World News on November 14, 1989. A journalist named Erwin Fisher confirmed the sketchy details that surround the missing Santiago Flight 513. As per the Brazilian aviation authorities, a commercial aircraft called Santiago Flight 513 took off from West Germany on September 4, 1954 and vanished somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean. Eventually, it was assumed lost and presumed all souls lost as well. However, on October 12, 1989, 
the plane suddenly reappeared without any contact with air traffic controllers. Santiago Flight 513 was spotted circling the Porto Alegre Airport, where it eventually made a successful landing. When authorities approached the craft and took note of its age, they were baffled to discover that it belonged to Santiago Airlines, a now-defunct airline that had ceased operating back in 1956. When the door opened, airport security and employees were shocked to discover there were 92 skeletonized bodies on board, including all 88 passengers and four crew members sitting in their seats. The most surprising fact was that the captain, skeletonized, Miguel Victor Curry, was still sitting in an intact position in the cockpit, clutching the controls. The Brazilian government investigated the strange occurrence. However, they refused to provide any explanation or theories on what happened to the flight. A paranormal researcher named Dr. Kelso Atello said that he felt Santiago Airline Flight 513 had probably entered a time warp. However, he had no explanation on how a skeleton could manage to land this, the plane safely. The, the government never gave any proper explanation for the incident. They also didn't comment on Dr. Otella's statement that the plane entered a time warp. So one of the things I wanted to share with you guys are some celebrity weirdness. So some of the things that I want to share with you guys in the new season for season two of Petrifaction are some celebrity stories, some celebrity encounters with unknowns, weirdness, ghosts, whatever, you know. And in this case that I'm about to tell you, it is about Muhammad Ali. And then there is a follow-up short, just a brief mention of some dude named Mick Jagger from a group called the Rolling Stones. Legendary boxer Muhammad Ali saw two UFOs over New York City when he was younger and working out and training for a fight in Central Park. Longtime friend and trainer Angelo Dundee also witnessed the UFOs describing that the crafts moved slowly over the skyline for about 15 minutes before disappearing. It was later found that several UFO sightings at Newark Airport had been reported. Mick Jagger's first encounter with the UFO was at Gastonbury Music Festival in 1968 when he saw a cigar-shaped craft light up the sky. It spooked him enough to install a home UFO detector capable of picking up changes in electromagnetic fields to indicate alien spaceships were nearby. In 1969, he had a second experience while camping. Rolling Stones bandmate Keith Richards also claims to have seen UFOs.
All I can say, folks, is if you think that sounds good, just hearing that coffee brew, you ought to be sitting here right now with me, smelling that coffee. Oh, I can't wait to have a cup. The coffee I'm having today came from LegacyBrewing.shop. They can take care of all your coffee needs. Check them out today. They have the best flavored coffees. They have coffee mugs. They're really cute coffee mugs. Everything you could possibly want. Check them out today, LegacyBrewing.shop, and put in podcast for the checkout code and receive 10% off your first order. During World War II, on August 16th of 1942, one of the strangest unexplained mysteries of all time occurred when the two-man crew of a U.S. Navy submarine chaser blimp vanished in mid-flight. The U.S. Navy blimp, L-8, was set to take off from Treasure Island, San Francisco Bay early in the morning on a mission to look for Japanese submarines in the Pacific. On board the blimp, a three-man crew consisting of Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody, Ensign Charles Ellis Adams, and the mechanic assigned to the flight, J. Riley Hill, who also prepared the L-8 for its flight. As it was about to take off, Hill was told that the ship was too heavy and he was ordered to stay behind. The L-8 finally took off at 6 a.m. with just two of its scheduled three-man crew. The last contact with the blimp came at 7.50 a.m. when it was about five miles east of the Farallone Island. The crew radioed that they were going to investigate an oil slick. Standby was the last anyone heard of the crew of the L-8. Now the L-8 circled and had been seen over the spot for about an hour by two nearby ships. The crew of the fishing boat, the Daisy Gray, and a Liberty ship, the Albert Gallatin. Both crews gave testimony during the inquest uh, that was to follow and stated thus, After making it over the dunes and into the golf course, still venting drags along the grass. The bomb on the right side of the gondola gets dislodged and drops onto the ground. At this point, the Navy receives an anonymous call saying that a blimp has crashed onto the golf course and that they have the recovered crew. As trucks are dispatched from Moffett Field to the golf course for a recovery, a second anonymous call comes in saying that the airmen are not aboard the crashed blimp. A strong gust of wind suddenly lifts the partially deflated blimp back in the air and sends it on a heading towards Daly City. The police and fire department, who are now following the blimp, chase it all the way until it finally comes to rest on Bellevue Avenue in Daly City. The blimp entangled in the power lines running down the street. Rescuers arrive quickly and find no sign of a crew. They also discover one of the two doors is lat fully open. Navy personnel arrive on scene shortly thereafter and find that the engine switch is on with plenty of gas in the tanks. The secret code books on board are intact. The parachutes, raft, guns undisturbed, and the radio and bogan hailer all function. 
Navy trucks arrive with armed sailors and the blimp is trucked off hours later with guards surrounding the blimp. A Navy Board of Investigation is formed two days later under Commander Francis Connell. The board calls witnesses and Navy personnel involved in the maintenance of the blimp. The Board of Inquiry probes for a reasonable explanation, but none's available. The engines start and operate normally when tested. The radio works normally. It was reported that in the case of an emergency, the first thing the crew would do was use the radio. The Bogenhaler would allow the pilots to send word to any surface ships should the radio not work. Should the engine stop, free ballooning back to land is an option, dropping weight to adjust height. Should the gas envelope develop a leak, parachutes are provided. A raft is on board should the raft land in water. And none of these options were taken. The testimony considers that the crew may have fallen accidentally through, through the open door. This they reported though is not possible given the locking mechanism on the doors. The phone calls remain unexplained and untraceable. Why would someone claim that they have the crew? Then shortly after state the crew was missing. How do two men vanish from a blimp over the ocean? And this case remains unsolved. During the bombing of London, Winston Churchill was having dinner at 10 Downing Street, the official residence of the Prime Minister. Despite the doom outside, Churchill continued to eat, but suddenly he stopped for no apparent reason, went into the kitchen where the servants were working. He proceeded to order them into the bomb shelter in the basement and to put the meal on a hot plate. They did as they were told and Churchill returned to the dining room. Moments later, a bomb was dropped, which destroyed the kitchen entirely. Another time, Churchill was inspecting anti-aircraft guns before a night attack. After he was finished, he went to his car where his door had been open, and for whatever reason, he avoided the open door and entered through the opposite door. While the car was going through the streets, a bomb was dropped, which would have caused the car to careen over if Churchill had been on his assigned side. But because of his foresight, the car went on safely. Later, when asked why he had done that, he responded that something within him said stop before entering through the open door. Was it premonitions that saved Churchill on these occasions? Or was it a coincidence? I think that just goes to show that you really kind of ought to always listen to that inner voice. When you have a feeling, a strong feeling, especially about something, don't discard it. Listen to that inner voice. It's usually right.
that's all for today's podcast. I thank you for tuning in and I hope you liked the show. If you did, please tell a friend, give us a rating and hit subscribe. If you have a story you would like to share on Petrifaction, you can contact me at pd at petrifaction at protonmail.com. And remember to check out today's show notes for more information on today's stories. Please return next time to hear more stories. And friends, be prepared to be petrified.